0: Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, January 16th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at
1: today's top stories. NATO is allegedly preparing for a Russian attack in 2025. William Lai wins Taiwan's presidential election. U.S. congressional leaders unveil a stopgap bill to avert a shutdown. Missiles
0: hit a U.S. ship off Yemen's coast. North Korea claims to have tested a solid-fuel hypersonic missile. Biden is reportedly running out of patience with Netanyahu.
1: U.S. climate envoy John Kerry plans to step down. Frederick X is proclaimed king of Denmark. The White House warns Texas against
0: blocking border patrol access. And the IMF warns AI could affect 40% of jobs. In our top story, the
1: German military document says that NATO is preparing for a Russian attack in 2025. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine Form, Ukraine's Kapravda, and U.S. News & World Report. NATO and Germany are preparing for a possible war with Russia in 2025, according to a German Defense Ministry document obtained by German publication BILD, or BILD. The classified planning document outlines a hypothetical series of events from February 2024 to the spring of next year, predicting that Russia will attack NATO's eastern flank in Lithuania and NATO's subsequent response. The document forecasts that Russia will mobilize 200,000 troops in February and that it will launch a new offensive in Ukraine this spring. It goes on to predict that due to insufficient Western arms, Ukraine's military will be defeated by June before Russia wages a campaign of cyber espionage and other means of hybrid warfare on Western countries, namely the Baltic states. It then forecasts that Russia will use ethnic clashes in the Baltic states to justify holding large-scale military exercises in Belarus. It goes on to predict that Russia will further escalate tensions by deploying additional forces and medium-range missiles in the region of Kaliningrad, a Russia enclave wedged between Poland and Lithuania. The document's forecasts culminate in Russia exploiting instability in the U.S. government following 2024 elections to launch attacks on Lithuania's Suwalki Gap region, a land corridor connecting Kaliningrad and Belarus. In December 2024, it predicts a, quote, border conflict and riots with many victims. Finally, it predicts NATO will meet to agree on deterrence measures in May of 2025, resulting in NATO deploying a fighting force of 300,000 troops, including 30,000 Germans, to the region. Responding to BUILD, Germany's defense ministry insisted that, quote, looking at different scenarios, even extremely unlikely ones, is part of its military routine. The leak follows a German announcement last month stating that it will station a permanent combat-ready brigade of 4,800 troops in Lithuania from 2027. It will be the first permanent deployment of German troops outside the country since World War II.
0: Thanks, Eric, for those facts. Our first narrative spin is the pro-establishment spin from foreign policy. Although the U.S. and its Western partners are doing everything they can to prevent Russian aggression in Ukraine, they must prepare for this scenario. That Russia will hit somewhere they're not expecting, the Suwalki Gap near the borders of Poland and Lithuania. This is the next logical step of Putin's imperial ambitions.
1: The pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. It was NATO, not Russia, that announced a buildup of military forces in Lithuania. This escalation threatens Russia's Kaliningrad region. Therefore, Russia must respond accordingly to ensure its people are protected. As always, the U.S. and the West are carrying out provocations and then blaming Russia for the consequences.
0: And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they predict a 1.5% chance that Russia will annex any part of any Baltic country by 2035. The ruling party's lie wins Taiwan's presidential election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, NHK, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera, and the Taipei Times. Taiwan's Central Election Commission announced on Saturday that Vice President William Lai Ching-ti has won the presidential election despite Beijing, which claims the island as its own, warning Taiwanese people not to vote for him. The candidate of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, secured 40.1% of the vote, or more than 5.5 million votes, to defeat second-placed KMT's Hu Yui by roughly 7 percentage points. Ko wen je of the Taiwan's People's Party finished third with 26.5% of the vote. This outcome marks the first time since direct presidential elections began in 1996 that Taiwan will have the same party in office for a third consecutive term, as the president-elect will succeed his boss, President Tsai Ing-wen, who is about to complete her two four-year terms. Meanwhile, no party secured a majority in the 113-member Legislative Yuan, with the nationalist KMT taking 52 seats to become the largest party in parliament. Lai's DPP-151 seats, 10 fewer, than they had in the previous legislature, while the TPP won eight seats. This three-way legislative split may compel Lai to form a nonpartisan cabinet and incorporate policy platforms of his opponents to reach across the aisle to pass legislation. It's unclear whether the opposition would accept such an unprecedented framework. Lai will take office on May 20th amid growing concerns over an escalation of tensions between mainland China and Taiwan as Beijing has cast the election as a choice between war and peace while calling the president-elect a warmonger. Scott, thank you for the
1: facts. We begin our round of spins with an anti-China narrative coming from CNN. Voters have ignored threats from Beijing, demonstrating their commitment to the island's democracy as well as to its de facto sovereignty. Hopefully, the PRC will finally realize that intimidating the Taiwanese people doesn't work and understand that only peace can promote stability across the strait. If not, then it's better for Taiwan to have bolstered
0: defenses with other democratic nations. And the pro-China narrative from Global Times, Taiwan belongs to China, and no election will ever obstruct the inevitable national reunification. That's even more true now as results clearly revealed that voters gave no mandate for the DPP to represent the mainstream public opinion on the island. Beijing wants peace, but it will firmly oppose separatist activities and foreign interference. The nerds
1: from Metaculus say there's a 13% chance that Taiwan will declare independence by 2035. U.S. congressional leaders present a stopgap bill to prevent a shutdown. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Appropriations, CBS, Chuck Schumer's X-Account, and Politico. Leaders within the U.S. House and Senate on Sunday agreed on a bipartisan short-term spending bill intended to extend federal funding of various agencies and prevent a partial government shutdown this Friday. The extension, titled the Further Additional Continuing Appropriations and Other Extensions Act 2024, would allow departments listed under agriculture, rural development, food and drug administration and related agencies, energy and water development, military, veteran affairs, and related agencies, as well as transport, housing, and urban development to receive funding until March 1st. The bill would also allow departments listed under Commerce, Justice, Science, and Related Agencies, Defense, Financial Services, and General Government, Homeland Security, Interior, Environment, and Related Agencies, Labor, Health, and Human Services, Education, and Related Agencies, Legislative Branch, as well as State and Foreign Operations, and Related Programs to receive funding until March 8th. Last week, the two chambers of Congress reached a $1.66 trillion agreement that set federal spending in fiscal year 2024. Unless either a funding extension or Congress's appropriation bills pass this week, government departments financed by four appropriation bills will close January 19th, while other departments could close February 2nd. Commenting on the agreement, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, called the extension necessary and said the agreement allows the U.S. to, quote, address many of the major challenges at home and abroad. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, during a Sunday conference call, said the extension was, quote, required to complete what House Republicans are working hard to achieve. Meanwhile, the GOP's House Freedom Caucus tweeted that the agreement is,
0: quote, what surrender looks like. Thanks, Eric. CNN brings us the Democratic narrative on this story. With a deadline looming, this agreement represents a reasonable compromise from both sides and should be met with little controversy, even if a stubborn section of conservative GOP members will stomp their feet and complain about any deal that doesn't align 100% with their hardline agenda. Johnson must withstand the pressure for the sake of the bipartisan majority. The Republican narrative comes from New York Post.
1: Although the House GOP isn't united on everything, one matter it can coalesce around is the Biden administration's failed border security policies. So Johnson has successfully negotiated spending cuts into this bill, but he still must get more concessions from the Democrats in order to satisfy the right flank of the party.
0: And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the Republicans will win control of the U.S. House of Representatives in 2024. Missiles fired from Yemen hit a U.S. owned cargo ship. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Al Jazeera, BBC News, and Sky News. A U.S.-owned cargo ship with Marshall Islands flags called the MV Gibraltar Eagle was struck by a missile launched from a Houthi-controlled part of Yemen and suffered limited damage, according to the vessel's U.S. operator Eagle Bulk Shipping. According to the U.K.'s Maritime Trade Operations, or U.K.MTO, the ship was hit 95 nautical miles southeast of the Yemeni city of Adan. U.K.MTO said the strike was launched in response to strikes by the U.S. and U.K. on Houthis in Yemen. U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said that all 13 U.S.-U.K. strikes on Houthi targets have been hit with no civilian casualties reported. Following the incident, the U.S. Navy said there's a high degree of risk to commercial vehicles between the 12th parallel north and the 16th parallel north of the Red Sea, adding that ships should remain north of the 18th parallel north. The U.S.-led strikes came in response to more than 24 Houthi strikes against commercial ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis have also launched unsuccessful attacks against U.S. Navy ships, including one missile fired at the USS Laboon destroyer ship Sunday, which was shot down by an American fighter jet. Although the U.S. last week knocked out around 30 Houthi sites, they reportedly still have about 75% of launch capacity left.
1: Scott, thanks for the facts. The pro-establishment narrative coming from BBC News. The Western Coalition has repeatedly warned the Houthi terrorists to not attack civilian cargo ships. Not only are these vessels non-military ships, but many aren't even linked to Israel, despite the Houthis' claims. By forcing countries to reduce cargo shipments through the Red Sea, the Houthis are sabotaging the global economy. And they must be stopped.
0: Middle East Eye brings us the establishment critical narrative. U.S. and U.K. strikes aren't going to deter the Houthis, who are using their stated solidarity with Palestinians to legitimize themselves on the world stage. Instead, the West should focus on getting Israel to call off its siege of Gaza. Because attempting to bomb the Houthis into acquiescence isn't likely to work. The nerds
1: from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that Yemen will no longer be classified as being in a state of civil war by January of 2028.
0: Man, you got to have some stones to uh, hit an American shipping vessel with a missile, knowing what the uh, response could be. Wow. Yeah. It I wonder be. if that was by accident. You know, if they're fired, I'm, I'm assuming the Houthi targeting capabilities is more Top Gun 1, not Top Gun Maverick, you know, in terms of technology.
1: I think it's the fentanyl-laced cocaine is what's really oh,
0: gotten on. <laughs> oh, so at least they're having fun. I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad to hear it.
1: Yeah. Biden's patience with Netanyahu is running out. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, New York Times, The Hill, The Times of Israel, BBC News, and Voice of America. According to four anonymous officials, U.S. President Joe Biden is growing increasingly frustrated with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, reportedly due to his resistance to abide by U.S. priorities, including his refusal to release Palestinian tax revenues and his unwillingness to seriously discuss post-war governance in Gaza. Over the weekend, Netanyahu vowed to continue the war until, quote, total victory which he has defined as dismantling Hamas, returning all Israeli hostages, and ensuring that Gaza will never again constitute a threat to Israel. Yet on Sunday, White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said that now is the, quote, right time for Israel to scale back its military operations and transition into a new phase of lower-intensity operations, indicating that the U.S. wants to see, quote, more precise raids and less airstrikes. The Israeli military announced Monday that its 36th division has begun to withdraw for a rest and recuperation, or R&R, and training period, after which it will be decided if and where to redeploy them. Meanwhile, three other divisions remain in the Strip as Israeli forces continue to expand their ground operations, entering the Nusayrat refugee camp in central Gaza for the first time since the war began. Elsewhere, two Palestinians were arrested for allegedly ramming and stabbing attacks in Ranana, north of Tel Aviv, after one person was killed and 17 others injured on Monday. Police say both suspects are from Hebron, West Bank, and legally entered Israel. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 24,000 people in the Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in Gaza.
0: Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a quartet of narratives on this controversial story. Let's start with the pro-establishment narrative from Politico. The U.S. is doing everything it can to both ensure that Israel can eliminate Hamas's military capabilities and prevent regional escalation. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere, and is taking the right steps to wind down its military operations in Gaza, as it is not in the U.S. or Israel's best interest to see the conflict escalate. Nevertheless, the U.S. is prepared to defend its allies in the region— and deter threats to regional and global security.
1: We continue with a pro-Israel narrative coming from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a terrorist army with far greater military capabilities than Hamas, and Israel cannot allow its citizens residing in the north to live under the constant threat of terrorist attacks. The UN resolution that ended the 2006 war with Hezbollah has failed to ensure Israel's security. And if some sort of new arrangement is not made, Israel will be forced to intervene. Likewise, in Gaza, Hamas's military capabilities must be
0: eliminated to ensure Israel's security. And the pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas or Hezbollah, but against the Palestinian and Lebanese people as a whole. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. Finally,
1: there's a nerd narrative for this story coming from Metaculus. It says there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 35,300 Palestinian civilian deaths in the
0: Israel-Gaza
1: conflict before July 1st, 2024.
0: And another rocket-propelled news, North Korea claims a solid-fuel hypersonic missile test. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Time Magazine, Al Jazeera, and UPI. South Korea's military said Sunday it detected the first missile test of the year by the North. Pyongyang commented on Monday that it had successfully test-fired a new ballistic missile with a hypersonic maneuverable warhead. According to the North, this was the first test of a solid-fuel hypersonic intermediate-range ballistic missile, or IRBM. According to military authorities from South Korea and Japan, The IRBM was fired from a location near Pyongyang and traveled eastward before it crashed in the waters between North Korea and Japan. North Korean state media reported that Sunday's launch never affected the security of any neighboring country and had nothing to do with the regional situation. Japan issued a statement condemning the ballistic missile launch, saying the test was a clear violation of UN resolutions prohibiting North Korea from conducting the use of such technology and threatening the peace and security of Japan, the region, and the international community. North Korea's missile and nuclear weapons programs have achieved many breakthroughs in technology in recent years. IRBM technology is particularly difficult to intercept since it travels at more than five times the speed of sound and is agile. In November, the North launched and successfully placed its first military reconnaissance satellite in orbit. By 2024, it intends to launch three more.
1: Thanks for laying out the facts, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A coming from the Japan Times. Because of Pyongyang's increased military cooperation with Moscow, the recent launch sends a powerful message far beyond the Korean peninsula and the region. This Russian-North Korean partnership can be seen on the ground in Ukraine, where Russia has employed North Korean weapons while also giving advanced rocket technology to the north. This creates a hazardous precedent, potentially jeopardizing world peace and
0: security. Counter that with Narrative B from KCNA Watch. North Korea continues to test and develop its defenses against Washington and Seoul's military provocations. South Korea and the U.S. risk nuclear war by holding multiple military exercises along the North Korean border and in the border region. By bringing in new military assets such as aircraft carriers, nuclear submarines, and strategic heavy bombers, this is threatening not only North Korea but also regional peace and stability. Pyongyang has every right to counter these provocations by expanding its defensive military capabilities. And finally, Metaculus chimes in with their
1: nerd narrative. It says there's a 15% chance there will be a full-scale war between North Korea and South Korea by 2050. Climate envoy John Kerry is leaving the Biden administration. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Al Jazeera, Business Insider, USA Today, and BBC News. John Kerry, the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate since early 2021, will be stepping down before spring, according to several published reports. Unnamed officials told the media Kerry announced his resignation to Democratic President Joe Biden on Wednesday, and Kerry's staff was informed Saturday. The former Secretary of State under President Barack Obama and U.S. Senator from Massachusetts is expected to help with Biden's 2024 re-election campaign. Kerry, who was one of the leading creators of the 2015 Paris Climate Accords, will be leaving a role that was specifically created for him to represent the U.S. across the world in climate change matters. More recently, Kerry, during the COP28 climate summit in Dubai, helped negotiate an agreement between countries to reduce consumption of fossil fuels. Kerry also worked closely with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Zhenhua, to get the two countries, the most significant global emitters of greenhouse gases, to cooperate on a plan to triple renewable energy worldwide by 2030.
0: Thanks, Eric. We have some matching left and right narrative spins on this story. Let's start with the Democratic spin from NPR. Kerry deserves kudos for all he accomplished in his role as climate envoy with the COP28 agreement to get countries to begin transitioning away from fossil fuels, both the most recent and most historic achievement of his stint. His efforts to get the U.S. and China to put aside other grievances and cooperate on climate change initiatives have put the world on the right path in the face of a warming world. Kerry will be missed.
1: Fox News has a Republican narrative. The only thing better than Kerry leaving this post will be if the post is completely obliterated and never filled again. Kerry traveled the world promoting anti-energy policies that harmed the U.S. economy. The envoy position was also created without a mechanism for oversight, so Kerry wasn't required to be transparent about his work and its impact. His departure is welcome news for American consumers and businesses.
0: In a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's an 80% chance that the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement before the year 2029, if a Republican wins the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Frederick X is proclaimed the new king of Denmark. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Time Magazine, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. Denmark Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen on Sunday proclaimed Frederick X king on the balcony of Christiansburg Palace in Copenhagen after the country's longest-serving monarch, Queen Margrethe II, formally signed her abdication, ending her 52-year reign. Tens of thousands of people gathered on the streets of the Danish capital to watch King Frederick X succeed his 83-year-old mother, who on New Year's Eve became the first Danish monarch in over 800 years to abdicate voluntarily. In a live address on December 31, 2023, Margrethe announced she would step down and leave the responsibility to the next generation, citing a back surgery she underwent last February. Margrethe will keep her title as queen, while the king's wife, Princess Mary, will step into the role of queen consort of Denmark. Christian, the king's 18-year-old son, will become Denmark's crown prince and heir to the throne. While the royal family's duties are largely ceremonial, Frederick and Mary have made modernizing the Danish monarchy and using their position to fight for global issues, including sustainability and the rights of girls and women, their priority. According to surveys conducted after Margaret Thay declared her abdication, 82% of Danes expressed confidence in King Frederick X's ability to perform well in his new role, while 86% shared the same positive outlook about Mary.
1: Scott, thanks for those facts. The first spin is Narrative A, and it comes from New York Times. Denmark is entering a new era. With high approval ratings, this down-to-earth king, who embraces environmental issues, sends his children to state schools and shops and dines in public like a commoner, will make one of Europe's oldest monarchies more accessible, popular,
0: and relevant to its people. The local of Denmark brings us Narrative B. Denmark is a democracy. The monarchy doesn't fit, and this is the perfect time to consider getting rid of it. At the very least, the royals should be stripped of their constitutional powers, including the necessity for the king's signature on parliamentary acts.
1: The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that Denmark will rank at least 14th in GDP per capita, or PPP, in 2030
0: were wooden shoes a real thing? I just thinking through that in in my childhood, I feel like wooden shoes in this part of Europe was a big deal. But how does that even work?
1: I don't know. It's funny. I had this conversation uh, just a few days ago. (laughs) I was in a store or whatever, and there was a pair of wooden shoes there. They were like super old and like used like they had been worn. (laughs) I was was like, well, maybe 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 wooden shoes were a real thing. Maybe these are like really from Denmark or something.
0: I I don't see the practicality and again, change my mind, please. Right, uh, right, right. But I, but but uh, they're going to have to be orthotics. I mean, the worst thing you'd have to do is call
1: Terminex to make sure your shoes.
0: Oh, my lasted. gosh. If you got an infestation. Yeah. If you got Those some carpenter ants oh, in, in your shoes, although that would make them breathe a little better. So maybe <laughs> that's, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, this is true.
0: Uh, we'll, well, again, we'll workshop this whole yeah. thing. Let's do this.
1: Next up, the White House warns Texas against blocking Border Patrol access. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, PBS NewsHour and Associated Press. The White House on Sunday reportedly issued a letter to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton to allow U.S. Border Patrol access to the crossing with Mexico near the border town of Eagle Pass before this Wednesday. U.S. Department of Homeland Security lawyer Jonathan Meyer wrote to Paxton warning that the matter would be referred to the Department of Justice, or DOJ, if the state continues to block federal agents. The letter cites an incident from last Friday during which three migrants, a woman and two children, drowned while Border Patrol reportedly couldn't get past a Texas National Guard blockade. Texas on Sunday countered Border Patrol's claim about migrant deaths, saying the federal agency's request came only after two of them had already drowned. On Friday, the DOJ requested the U.S. Supreme Court order Texas to lift its blockade after the state fenced off a 50-acre area where thousands had crossed over from Mexico to the U.S. last year. This comes as Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has continued to clash with the Biden administration over immigration policy. The blockade is part of Operation Lone Star, which Abbott says is aimed at
0: minimizing illegal crossings. Thanks, Eric. Again, political narratives on this story, unsurprisingly. Let's start with the Democratic narrative from The Guardian. Abbott is just ratcheting up fear in the run-up to the 2024 U.S. election because current migrant crossings hardly compare to the huge numbers recorded in the early 2000s. The unprecedented blocking of federal agents in the name of tightening border control hides the fact that the current uptick in illegal crossings began before Biden's election. Abbott is playing politics and feeding the border security industry.
1: And Fox News counters with the Republican narrative, it says Biden is completely ignoring the immigration crisis. Given the lackluster efforts to deport illegal aliens, what is the true function of the Border Patrol? The, quote, ignoring and enabling cycle is plaguing the U.S. southern border. This is a massive crisis for the U.S. that the Biden administration is failing tremendously.
0: And a nerd narrative from Metaculous, there's a 50% chance that 41.7% of U.S. Hispanic or Latino voters will vote Republican in 2024. Our final story, the IMF warns AI could affect 40% of jobs and worsen inequality. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, The Guardian, The Independent, and CNBC. According to a new analysis by the International Monetary Fund, published ahead of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, AI will hit roughly 4 in 10 jobs worldwide and most likely deepen overall inequality among countries. Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva detailed on Sunday that as much as 3 in 5 jobs could be affected in more advanced economies partly due to their higher proportion of white-collar jobs adding that around only half of those may benefit from the technological revolution. Comparatively, AI exposure has been estimated to be at 40% in emerging market economies, including China, India, and Brazil, and 26% for low-income nations. Highly exposed jobs with low complementarity, such as in telemarketing, are those that have a higher potential for being taken by AI. Georgieva further argued that unlike previous technological revolutions, AI will have the ability to impact high-skilled jobs, Regarding inequality, she stressed that developed economies may adapt quicker than developing nations, while younger workers may adapt easier than older workers. Given the reported troubling trend, the IMF urged policymakers to implement extensive social safety nets and provide job retraining programs for vulnerable workers to prevent resulting social tensions. This comes as Goldman Sachs previously warned that generative AI could impact up to 300 million jobs globally, though recognizing that the technology could improve labor productivity and growth and even boost gross domestic product by 7%.
1: Those were the facts, and our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Newsweek. It's a matter of fact that there's no way back to the pre-AI era, and some human jobs will be destroyed, especially as companies want to maximize efficiency. However, this must not come at the expense of the livelihood of hundreds of millions of workers. As recommended by institutions like the IMF, governments worldwide must implement regulations to ensure that integrating this
0: technology won't cause unemployment surges. The Epoch Times brings us the establishment critical narrative. Essentially, the impact of artificial intelligence on the labor market is no different than that of computers, light bulbs, and automobiles. Whenever a more efficient technology arises to benefit mankind, some jobs will be rendered obsolete and workers will be displaced. And that's exactly the evolutionary process of capitalism. Some justified security concerns aside, AI and its impact on the global workforce must be celebrated. The nerds of
1: Metaculus say there's a 14% chance that the percentage of U.S. workforce employed in white-collar jobs will decrease by at least two percentage points below the 2022 level before 2026, potentially due to the influence of AI or other factors. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, January 16th, 2024.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: Find out more at Verity.News and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.